I don't know about you guys, when it comes to life events, I don't, I don't necessarily recall things too well from my past. Like, I'm good. Like, I, I remember details and what's coming up. I'm always like, okay, this is the next thing on my calendar. Got to get ready for this. After it's done, like, I'm, I like do a memory wipe, and I don't hardly remember it. I just, I'm not good about that. Christy jokes with me and basically says, she doesn't think I had a childhood. She doesn't believe I had a childhood because I don't have many memories from it. And it's not that it was bad or I don't have, like, a traumatic, please don't try to analyze me. I didn't have a traumatic event that caused me not to remember my childhood. It's just the way I'm wired. Once something's done, I'm moving on to the next thing, and I forget what I just did. Um, you can talk to me about my message afterwards, and I'll be like, I'm glad you remembered it because I'm already on to my next one in memory wipe. Um, but there are a couple things I remember vividly, just a few. And one of those was as a, like a 12, 13-year-old, I went to a Garth Brooks concert. And I really liked Garth Brooks at the time. I still like him. I went uh, a couple years ago. We went Blake and Michelle to a Garth Brooks concert. They saw half the show and left because they wanted to beat the crowds, and they didn't realize he does a long intermission. And me and Christy stayed and saw the whole show. They... <laughs> sat in the parking lot for a while. Um, but I really liked him, but I always thought he was just kind of wild and crazy, and he did like, you know, just high energy, which he does, absolutely. And if you've gone to one of his shows, he does not disappoint, like with the energy level. Like I'm sitting here watching him and just thinking about the energy level that he does as like a 50-something-year-old man. I'm like, I need another cup of coffee. Like he still gets after it. Well, at the time, though, I didn't know, like, can, is he actually a good musician? Like can he play and sing on his own? His whole band goes backstage, and he comes back on stage with just him and his guitar. And for about 30 to 45 minutes, he just played songs with just him and his guitar. And he came out and he did a rendition of American Pie, uh, also known as The Day the, the Music Died. And to me, he did it better than Don McLean himself. He came out there and the whole crowd singing along, if you know the song, Bye, Bye, Miss America. It's like, really, you know, really catchy. We all kind of know that song, right? It's, it's like a, a slice of Americana. Um, and so I, I love that song, and I love the way he did it, and that just stands out to me. And as I was thinking even about that and that memory, another one, as I was writing this message, it came to mind. On a youth group trip to the mountains, um, we are in the back of a bus. You know, we drove those yellow buses, if you guys remember. Before they did nice buses for people, and you did the yellow, we call them yellow dogs. I don't know why. You know, you're rolling down the windows to, when you go anywhere. We start, like, someone plays that song, and we start singing along. Well, uh, to say I came from a pretty strict church background is, is an understatement. I came from a very strict church background, okay? And so an adult walked on the bus, one of the leaders from church, and he's like, you guys can't be listening to that song or singing that song. It talks about drinking. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, for someone who loved country music, it was like, well, that, that's it. I can't listen to any more music, I guess. <laughs> I'm done. But that song, like, we, like, I just love that song. It's so catchy, and it was written about a certain event, though, in American history. Um, does anyone know what that song was actually written about? Plane crash. Yeah, who died in the plane crash? Buddy Holly. Who else? Big Bopper, and I heard the other one. Richie Valens, La Bamba. The three guys died in that crash, and so he wrote the song, The Day the Music Died, in memory of that. They were killed February 3rd, 1959, in a plane crash in Iowa. And we do that in our culture, right? When there's significant events or people that are significant in our life, we take time to write about them or write about their life or write about a memory we recall about their life. It's something that's kind of just, we, we do. One of my favorites right now, if you like the slightest bit of country music, go listen to the song. Bible, it's called The Bible and a 44 by Ashley McBride. And it's a song about her dad. And it's fantastic. 
Um, and so if you want a great song to listen to. But she wrote it about her dad. And Christy kind of messes with me and says, I got a girl crush on her. If you look at her, you'll know that's not true. It's just her voice. Um, great voice. Um, <laughs> Clay. <laughs> But throughout history and cultures, we, we write songs or poetry to express our thoughts and emotions and what's going on. One of my daughters does that already. We didn't really tell her to do that. Christy encouraged that. But she writes down her thoughts and her emotions, what she's thinking, and she keeps a journal of these things. And as we've been studying about David, David wrote a whole bunch of the Psalms. He would write down what he's feeling about, what's going on in his life, how God is working in his life. And it's basically almost a glimpse at his personal journal, many of these things. It's like the true core of what he was feeling and what's going on. And right now, the psalm we're going to look at today, it wasn't written by David, but it was actually written about David in a significant event for Israel And that event is the return of the ark to Jerusalem. And for us, maybe culturally, again, it's hard for us to put ourselves there, but this was a major, major event for them. The Lord's ark is returned to Jerusalem, and this psalmist takes time, and he writes about this event and what's going on. So we're going to start in Psalm 132. We'll read the first five verses and then go from there. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So the first thing we see here in this psalm is we see David's commitment to the Lord. Um, clearly the psalmist is favorable towards David. Um, You could see that in his writing. Uh, David's probably the most well-known person, I mean almost certainly the most famous person in in all of uh, Israel at this time, where we have a bunch of different celebrities and we could follow them all sorts of different through different mediums. At that time, you know, he was the king. He would have been the identifiable person for pretty much all of Israel is known as. And this psalmist, he, he writes this, almost like this prayer. He says, Lord, remember David. The Lord doesn't necessarily have to remember someone. He, he knows David. And he knows what's going on. But it, 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 we find ourselves praying that way too, don't we? Sometimes, Lord, remember this person. Well, the Lord didn't forget. It's more just our way of saying, uh, be with this person. Uh, it, it's just kind of a way we express our desire for the Lord to take care of them and be involved in their life and their situation and what's going on. And so we see him kind of write this as a prayer for David as he starts it off. Um, and we also see uh, this, this author, though, is reminding us of how devoted David was to following the Lord in the hard times. He says, remember all the hardships he endured. And if you think back as we've kind of looked at the life of David, uh, the hardships he endured, a fleeing from Saul multiple times, um, the family issues, lots of hardships. And he's just saying, man, David's gone through a lot of things, and yet he's remained devoted. He's remained committed to you. And so the psalmist references David's commitment then to bringing uh, the Lord and bring his arcs wandering to an end. Uh, David ultimately hoped he'd build the temple. He was not able to do that. He did build this temporary structure known as a tabernacle to house the ark. Um, Israel, and specifically Moses, uh, during their time of wandering in the Exodus, they built the Ark of the Covenant and it held the Ten Commandments and some other sacred items that were in it. And the ark was kind of, it symbolized the presence of the Lord. Um, and it's a little differently now in the New Testament, and we'll address that later. But they didn't necessarily have a permanent dwelling place for this ark. But the ark itself symbolized the presence of the Lord. With the Ten Commandments, um, there was some manna kept in there from their wandering. Things that kind of they saw as attached to the Lord. And now the people of Israel had a home. 
They had Israel, they are in the promised land, they've settled the promised land, the time of Joshua and conquering and judges where they're again dealing with peoples over, and they have a home. Israel's a united kingdom, and it bothered David that there was no kind of home for the ark. David wanted the physical item, the ark of the covenant, and he wanted to bring that back, and he was so impassioned about it, having a home and having a resting place, that he makes this vow to the Lord to do it. And we find that in those first five verses I read. Now, obviously, David slept between the time he made this vow and the fulfillment of it, right? It wasn't overnight. He didn't go out and find it the next day, get it back to Israel. If we know it even rested in the house of Obed-Edom for a time. And so what what is David saying here? Is is David a liar? Is the Bible inaccurate? No, no, I don't think think so. Not Not in this circumstance. It's a figurative commitment, and and we do them all the time. We use figurative language all the time. He was just trying to state the importance of the task at hand. Um, Figurative expressions, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. It's raining cat and dogs. You know, we say things like like that all the time. We use figurative language to express what's going on around us. In sports, we talk about about going into war or battle in in a sporting event, Um, which is completely false if we've done any research into war. If, If... a sporting event was remotely like war, we'd be rushing to pull our kids out of sports, right? If they were coming home losing limbs or in caskets and body bags or mentally scarred for life, none of us would endorse like, oh, I want my kid to play this sport. There's a chance they come home in a body bag. No, it's not the same at all, yet we use that figurative language to express it's a competitive event, all right? But it's, it's figurative wording. So is it, a still commi- is it still a commitment? Absolutely. He made a solemn commitment to return the ark to Israel, but he wasn't using literal wording. He was using a figurative wording there. Um, and so we see this, like, this strong commitment David has that he wants to return the ark to Israel. I don't know how many of you guys remember um, kind of a figurative commitment just, just in the same line. After 9-11, when uh, George Bush stood at ground zero with his arm around the firefighter and he had the, the megaphone, and he, he basically goes on to say, the people that did this are going to hear from us really soon. He wasn't necessarily meaning like they're going to come listen to one of his speeches and hear from him. He's like, they're going to be dealt with and disciplined and taken care of soon. He was making this figurative commitment that as a nation, we were going to address what had happened there. And that's what David's done. He's made this figurative commitment, but it's a strong commitment. of saying, I'm going to return the ark to Israel. David was devoted to the Lord and to the presence of the Lord, and he wasn't going to rest until his task was accomplished. He was going to accomplish this task, and he wasn't going to be sidetracked. So now today, thinking through, fast-forwarding a little bit. So the Lord's presence is symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant at that time. Now in the New Testament, the Lord's home today now resides within the heart of each believer. We don't have a temple, or we don't even need to be in a temple. You don't have to be in a school that we call a church to be in the presence of the Lord. Our bodies are now the temple of the Lord. And as a believer, his presence is constantly with us. We don't have to go seek or, or ask him for his presence necessarily because if we're believers, the Holy Spirit has indwelled us. And so I want us to ask, think about this question. We think about David's commitment and devotion to bringing back what symbolized the, the presence of the Lord and bringing that back to Israel. How is our temple? David wanted so badly to build a temple for the Lord. He wanted to be in the presence of the Lord. Are we concerned about the temple we have for the Lord? What does our devotion and commitment to the Lord look like? What's our concern about God's holy temple that is our life? We look at how seriously David took that commitment, how much he wanted the presence of the Lord. 
we have the opportunity for that through the Holy Spirit's indwelling and salvation. But are we concerned with our temple that he resides in? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, we don't have to go and retrieve an ark or build a tabernacle. Our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So are we glorifying God with our body? Are we committed to following him with our life? You know, what are some of the silly little things maybe we get overly devoted to and overly committed to that have nothing to do with the Lord's presence or the Lord in our life or glorifying God with our bodies? What if our commitment to the Lord looked a little more like David's where he says, I'm not going to enter my house or go to my bed. And, and some people think basically what he's saying is he was making a vow of, of abstinence uh, at this time until he fulfilled this commitment. And I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He's saying until I bring the ark back and I find a resting place for it. I'm committed. There's nothing that's going to sidetrack me. There's nothing that's going to distract me. There's nothing that's more important than the presence of the Lord. And so in our life, what are the things that are more important than the presence of the Lord? What, what pulls us away? What destroys our own temple? What do we let corrupt and corrode our temple, which is the body, our, our body where the Holy Spirit resides? The next thing we see is David's excitement to worship the Lord in verses 6 through 10. Behold, we heard of it in, in Ephrath. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The ark had been captured by the Philistines. Now it's kind of returned. Um, we don't exactly know the whole returning process. It's kind of rumored, and they heard it was in this location, and so David's now wanting to go find it. Um, the Philistines have been cursed by it. They're not God's people. They have the ark, and the blessing it was meant to bring Israel was kind of in reverse for the Philistines. And so it's possible they just brought it back into a territory that belonged to Israel and I'm just getting rid of it. Get it out here because it's, it's messing us up and we don't want anything to do with it. David hears basically a rumor or word about it. Again, just different time. Has to come through the grapevine. This person told this person, hey, I think this so-and-so found this in this field. And we see that David finds it. And once he hears about it, though, there's this excitement to go and retrieve it. Let's go get it. Ron spoke a few weeks ago about the actual return to Jerusalem. You remember when David was dancing in the streets and his, his wife was mad at him because he's looking a fool? dancing in the streets, but there's this excitement, there's this joy that comes from the return of the ark to Israel. And so I was reminded as I read through this of a verse in Matthew that kind of talks about something similar. They found it in the fields, and in the psalm they're referencing the finding of an ark. And again, though, the ark is the physical symbol of the Lord's presence, but there's this excitement, this eagerness to go get it, to go and retrieve it, this joy to go get it. Whatever it takes, I'm going to go get the ark. I'm going to go get the presence of the Lord and return it to Israel. I want to read a verse in Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So Jesus here is referencing this person who's speaking about heaven, that he's so overjoyed at kind of understanding how to get there that he's willing to sell everything he has to go purchase this field. Now, now we don't purchase our salvation. That's not what he's saying. But it's an example that our eternity with heaven or being in the presence of the Lord for eternity, out of joy, he was willing to get rid of everything he owned and do away with it. 
There's nothing I own or I possess or I have within me that I am not willing to get rid of to go and be in the presence of the Lord for eternity. And so he goes and sells everything he has. In both instances, we see this desire to be in the presence of the Lord at all costs. Nothing will stop them. We see the joy that it brings. Where David was not going to be stopped from going to get the ark, this man was not going to be stopped from purchasing that field. Whatever it takes to be in the presence of the Lord, I'll sell it all. I'll do away with all of it. But I want to be in the presence of the Lord. So here's a shocker for you. Uh, Some of you, I I enjoy sports. I know that's going to catch some of you off guard. And last year I I went to a few uh, Kings games. Um, And and so what I'd find though, like I I wasn't always excited about driving to Sacramento. But by the time I hit Elk Grove, you know, you start to get a little excitement you know, building up, and then you stop and you eat at Chick-fil-A, and then you get really excited, right? Yeah, and then as you kind of walk through Doco in, in that area around the arena at Golden One, you're getting a little more excited, and then by the time you're in your seat and they're doing the starting lineups, what, you, you find yourself clapping and screaming and kind of starting to look foolish, and by the time the fourth quarter rolls around, when Slamson comes out, and he's, if you've ever been, they got this lion that's their mascot, and he comes out on stilts in the fourth quarter, and they wave the flags. And what are you doing by the time the fourth quarter rolls around? You're hollering like an idiot, like the rest of the people there, right? You're excited. You're pumped up. Even if you don't like basketball, I went with a group of guys last year. I don't, I don't know that they all love basketball. By the time the fourth quarter rolls around, we're all on our feet clapping. We're excited. We're excited to be in that environment, and we get so excited about these things that if we're honest about them, compared to our walk with the Lord or in light of eternity, are really meaningless, but we can get so excited, so plugged in, so like emotionally spent doing this, and yet sometimes we could come to worship the Lord and be stone-faced, disconnected, uninvolved, not excited, drug here kicking and screaming and yet we go to these things that if in light of eternity are really insignificant we find ourselves pouring out our energy and our emotion and our passion for and sometimes we think about our worship of the Lord and it's just so are we excited to worship the Lord and I'm not saying we need to act the same way at a basketball game as we act here I don't know that there's there's a time and a place But I think what I'm trying to get at is this this kind of this joy and excitement that overflows from us. Are we excited about our salvation? Are we excited about the Lord's work in our life? Are we excited about what he's doing in our community and our world around us? So is there some overflow of joy? And you know what? I'll be honest. That expresses itself differently. There are people that are truly worshiping the Lord and they're doing it in a somber manner. I'm not saying that. But I'm asking in your own life, and however that, that manifests itself in you, is there this joy to worship the Lord? David's overflowed when he was in the presence of the Lord and this desire and this commitment to go get the ark and his worship overflowed into dancing and shouting for joy and excitement. Are we enthusiastic to worship the Lord and however that manifests itself in our life? Do we desire to worship? Does it bring us joy? It says the man went and sold everything he had for, with, with joy to be in the presence of the Lord. Compared to all the stuff around us and the stuff we want and the stuff we try to obtain, is being in the Lord's presence bring us more joy than all that stuff? So what does your worship look like? Does being in His presence bring you joy? Does it excite you? Does it bring you peace? Do you you pursue times of worshiping the Lord? 
You know, it shouldn't just be here on Sundays. If so, you're going to have a, a, a long week from Sunday to Sunday. There should be times out the week where you're taking time and worshiping the Lord. However that is, some people write, maybe it's playing songs, something that helps you reflect and worship and think about the Lord and enjoy the joy of your salvation. But there should be some devotion and commitment to worship in our life. And lastly in the psalm, we find the Lord's commitment to David. And I'm going to divide this into two parts because we find, first we find his earthly commitment to David about the lineage of kings from his family. And then secondly, we find this kind of eternal commitment that's made towards David. And so this first in the earthly commitment we see in verse 11 and 12, and it says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now here's the catch. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And this is kind of the sad part of it because we can look back historically and we can see what happens in the life of David, right? We see that one of his glaring weaknesses was his inability to lead his family well. In in his family alone, in a short time span, we have incestuous relationships, we have rape, we have murder, we have revenge, we have rebellion. And this is all in in just a few years' time span in the life of, of David. And he does not get involved. He doesn't really get involved as a parent, a parental authority and take care of these situations. So he led his nation well, but he led his home poorly in a lot of ways. And God commits to have David's son set on the throne forever of Israel, but he balances that with this, their responsibility, and their responsibility to obtain that promise. And unfortunately, what we see is it didn't take long for the kings to start turning away from the Lord. So his son that sat on the throne was Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was the next in line. And by the time of Rehoboam, so just a, a few generations removed, David's grandson, the kingdom of Israel is divided and starting to splinter and fall apart. And from there, you can track its downfall. Two generations removed from David, the man after God's own heart, to Rehoboam and turning away from the Lord and starting to see the nation splinter. It's amazing how fast someone or a nation can have a downfall when we let sin in and we turn away from God. When people start turning away from the Lord and embracing sin, corrosion begins to impact our life. And it doesn't take long to reveal itself. For David and for the nation of Israel, it's a couple generations. For us, sometimes it can be a couple days. But when we let sin in, it's a corroding factor in our life. It's to, what do we see in the New Testament? Steal, kill, and destroy The mission of Satan is not joy, fulfillment, peace, contentment. It's still kill and destroy. And sin is that corrosive thing that is his tool that does that in our lives. And we saw that in Israel. So are we following the Lord in the position he had for us? You see, he gave a responsibility to David and his sons that they will sit on the throne forever if they remain devoted and committed. So you see, God has set David up and his family to be in this good place. As long as they remain devoted in commitment and committed to the Lord, he set them up for success. Well, God's established a position for you as well. And and whatever that is, for some of you, it's authority as a parent or a spouse or a boss or a leader in some way, a coach. For some of you, it's a position of you're a child. You're in a submissive position or a worker or a student. But we're not all promised necessarily kingdoms, but we all have this position that we're meant to fulfill as well. And within that, there's this responsibility part as believers 
And this is where we all fall into kind of the same position. There's also a responsibility on our part to follow the Lord and individually lead others to follow the Lord. See, David's sons were told, you'll sit on the throne of Israel forever as long as you keep my commitments and follow me. See, God balanced his promise to David with responsibility. And he does that same thing often with us. He balances his promise with our responsibility to follow him. Look in Galatians 6. What happens if we sow to corruption and sinful living? It says we reap destruction. And oftentimes as Christians, there's times I think we want to sow to sinful living and sow to corruption and sow evil, and then we want to pray for crop failure in our lives. And yet God's told us, if we sow this in our life, for whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And he goes on to explain, if we sow evil and corruption, we're reaping destruction into our lives. There is a responsibility for what we sow in our life. So what are the seeds you're sowing? Are you following the Lord in the position he has for you? Of following him in your life and leading others to follow him? And next we look at more of this eternal commitment that he made to David because I really think there's a, there's a difference between the two. But he goes on to further talk about his commitment to David in 13 to 18. And he says this, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So the Lord's resting place is going to be Zion forever. Yet we find the lineage of kings broken in the earthly sense. The temple's destroyed and the ark is lost. So all these things that were so significant to Israel and the kingdom of Israel are kind of non-existent right now. So how is Zion going to be the Lord's resting place forever? And I think it's understanding this. Biblically, Zion had two meanings, okay? It can mean the hill on which Jerusalem sits, and it's literal meaning. But Zion also in the Bible oftentimes refers to the kingdom of heaven. And so it's quite possible here that while the Lord does kind of, he does bless David and he does bless the people of Israel on the ark's return to Israel, he's also talking about a greater Zion, the kingdom of heaven. And there's something greater being referenced here. And so the psalmist writing about the ultimate kingdom of Zion is that one day Jesus will sit on the throne of Zion and be the ultimate divine king. And unlike earthly kings that are tainted with corruption and, and I mean, go... Just look at history. Anyone who's had absolute power is, is basically becomes corrupt at some level and their nation becomes corrupt. But unlike earthly rulers with corrupt rulers, we see under the reign of Jesus, all will be provided for. We're gonna have, all will be taken care of. The poor will have food. Everyone's going to be taken care of and be okay. It's kind of this reference or this glimpse into eternity. And then he goes on and we see this prophetic statement that a horn will sprout for David. Now, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, saw this as a prophecy fulfilled when he understands that his son is going to be the forerunner to Jesus and Jesus is coming. And this is what he says in Luke 1, verse 68 through 71. This is Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's father. He says this, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
See, this horn he's referencing is not the on or the sprout that's coming out of David. He's not necessarily referencing the ongoing lineage of kings. Although Jesus was the rightful king to Israel, if they go back to the temple records and they track it all down, he had the rightful claim to that. But it's more an eternal king that he is referencing. And that's how Zechariah sees it, this horn of salvation that's coming from David, the Messiah who's come to earth. David's lamp or his dynasty is going to last forever in spite of the fact that his earthly dynasty has come to an end. His dynasty lasts forever because Messiah is king. And one day, it goes on to say, one day all the enemies of the Lord will be clothed in shame or put to shame. That's another way of saying all the enemies of the Lord will be defeated at one day. And so I have this question, will you join Jesus in Zion? And I know that that's a a really churchy word, but just talking about the kingdom of heaven or eternity in heaven, will you join Jesus there? The presence of the Lord that David is so greatly concerned about represented in the Ark of the Covenant is now available to all who believe in Jesus as Savior. His Spirit, as we said, comes to dwell with each person in that miraculous work of salvation. And so have you believed in Jesus as Savior? To enter into that eternal relationship with Him, Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Romans 10 says it this way. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's how we enter into eternal relationship with Christ. That's the starting point for it, is confessing Jesus as Savior, admitting we're sinners, we're messed up, in believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and choosing to place our faith in him alone as Savior. And that's that initial point. At that point, then our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit and we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we begin that maturing process. Mitch referenced about the core of salvation. That's that starting point for it of going from unbeliever to believer and then maturing in that. But that's step one. Have you done that? Jesus is going to reign forever. David's lineage of kings, while earthly is broken, is going to last forever eternally through Christ, through that horn of salvation. Have you joined into relationship with him? You know, I I started today kind of talking about a a well-known song, uh, American Pie. We could probably, most of us could sing along to parts of it. Now, maybe verse 3, 4, and 5, we'd start to get a little lost because it's like an eight and a half minute song, but we, we all know that chorus, right? And he wrote that about the death of, of uh, the three people we had referenced. And I, I just thought, what if someone close to you was going to write a psalm about your life? Or write a poem? Or a few stanzas? What, what would stand out to them? You see, this psalmist wrote about David. He wrote about the things that stood out in David in this circumstance. The passion he had to worship the Lord. His desire to be in the presence of the Lord. What are the things that would make the cut? Not the tertiary things or secondary things that are of non-importance. If someone was looking at your life and and just going to, I'm going to write about some of the things I see that was important to this person. I'm going to write a poem or a song about them. What would make the cut in your life? Would someone look at you the way the psalmist looked at David and saw how serious he was about following the Lord, the excitement about worshiping the Lord in this situation, the joy to be in the presence of the Lord? What would they say about us? Would they see our joy for other things? Things that aren't really relevant in light of eternity? Things that are very self-fulfilling? Would they see our selfish ambition and desires? Or would they see us passionately sold out to follow Christ? Let's pray.
Lord, we are grateful for uh, men in the Bible, men and women who followed you, who are passionate followers of Christ, and, and by no means were they perfect. Yet, time and again, we see David's passion to follow and worship you, his devotion to you. Um, so much so that people around him wrote things about him and, and talking about his commitment and his devotion to you. May we have people in our lives that when they look at us, they identify our passion, our commitment, our devotion to follow the Lord as things that stand out to them. Um, Lord, help us, help us not to let some of these secondary things take over primary spots in our life. Help us to keep them secondary and keep you primary. In Jesus' name, amen.